All right, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to James chapter 2. The book of James chapter 2. And this morning we'll be picking it up in verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. James writes, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you not want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith is working together with his works, and by works faith is made, was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works, and not by faith only. Likewise, Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out the other way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. I heard a story of a businessman who was in New York City during the holidays. And desiring to get home to his family for the holidays, he unfortunately had to take the last flight out of JFK before the airport uh, ceased and closed, or I should say, uh, ended flights before the holiday. Well, unfortunately, that day his meeting ran late. And he got back to his hotel, he threw all of his stuff into his suitcases and came down to the uh, area where the valets were gathering taxis for those who were trying to get home before the holidays. And if you've ever been in New York City, you realize that getting a cab is next to impossible at times. And even when you think you found one, someone comes in and snakes it out from underneath you. Finally, he got a cab, and he was on his way, and he said to the cab driver, please, please, if all possible, make it to the airport as quick as possible so I can catch that last flight. Well, as they are making their way to the airport, he discovers that the driver is driving extra slow. And he's trying to be patient in the backseat. Cars are going by them rapidly. And as he is finally starting to come to the end of his patience, he decides to reach through the glass and tap the cab driver on the shoulder 
to see if there was something wrong or if he could encourage him to hurry a little bit faster. So he reached through the glass and tapped the taxi driver on the shoulder and the taxi driver just flipped out, started swerving through the highway, in and out of cars. He was panicked. He was scared. You could see he began sweating profusely from behind the steering wheel. Finally, after a a very, very anxious and fearful moment, he gets the car to the shoulder, pulls over to the side, and finally takes a deep breath. So the passenger said to him, I am so, so sorry. I didn't mean to frighten you. And the driver said, oh, sir, no, no, please forgive me. For this is my first day as a cab driver. And before this, I drove a, I drove a Hertz, and I'm not used to anybody touching me from the back. <laughs> you don't expect something dead to be active. You don't expect something dead to be active. Today we come to a portion of Scripture that has caused great theological debate amongst the Christian community. The debate is concerning how an individual is saved. The theological term is called soteriology. It's the study of salvation. How does God save one? How does one become saved? And James here gives us a passage of Scripture that theologians have had grave difficulty with in light of all that Paul the Apostle has written concerning that salvation is by faith and faith alone. It appears here that what James writes would contradict that. That there's a contradiction now in Scripture concerning the theology of salvation. Is is one saved by faith? Is one saved by works? Is one saved by faith and works? How is one saved? I don't believe that they are in contention with one another, faith and works. I believe that works are the natural outworking of true saving faith in Jesus Christ. What James questions here is the type of faith that one has, indicating to us that if one is truly saved, that salvation will play out naturally within their life through their works. We are not saved by works, but the works that we do indicate that we are truly saved. So I've just given you a whole summary. If you want to go to lunch now, I've given you the cliff notes. But I think you should walk through it with us to see how brilliant this actually is. And at the end, I'll show you that Paul himself agreed with what James said here. So we begin in verse 14. And James asks us the question, What does it profit, or what does it benefit you, my brethren... If someone says that he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? And here is where we begin what appears to be a contradiction. Notice with me here in verse 14 what James says. It should be on the screen behind you. 
What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Notice this last four words. Can faith save him? Now, if you compare that to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and this is where the apparent contradiction comes into play. When Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Uh Uh-oh. Do we have a problem here? What is James saying? Now let us understand that our understanding of faith is key. It is important. For Paul indicates here that it is by faith that we are saved in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. He later writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 7 that we walk by faith and not by sight through this world. In Hebrews eleven six, we find that it's impossible to please God apart from faith. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is the, a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And anything that we do apart from faith, Paul says in Romans 14.23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not of faith is sin. So understanding what faith actually is, is it's vital. It's imperative to our Christian life. As someone once had said, Faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but obeying in spite of consequence. Uh, Let me read that again. For someone has said that faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but obeying in spite of consequence. James wrote to a very specific group of people. He wrote to Jewish believers who were scattered abroad throughout the Gentile world. They were known as the dispersa. They were individuals that were driven from Israel, their homeland, or ancestors or relatives of those who stayed in the Gentile world after the Babylonian captivity. Either way, they were Jewish individuals who had become Christians. And under the law of Moses, it was easy to ascertain where one stood with God by their obedience or disobedience to the law. But under the new covenant of Christ, the idea that we're saved by faith was a new concept. So the question that echoed in many of the minds of the New Testament believer was this, how can I know that I am truly saved? Now, these Jewish individuals apparently believed that a type of faith, and let me use another word in uh, conjunction with that, believing, a type of believing, using it synonymously, was sufficient. And James is going to challenge that idea. When James says here in verse 14, can that faith save you, Greek uh, grammaticists believe that it should be rendered, can that kind of faith save you? 
James is trying to get at the heart of the matter. What type of faith do you carry? What type of belief do you hold on to? For the new birth within the individual that is produced by faith in Jesus Christ will lead to the outworking of good works. And again, as I stated earlier, Paul the Apostle absolutely believed the same thing. We are not saved by our works, but the faith that we have is justified by our works, meaning it is evidence It authenticates our faith in Jesus Christ. And at the end, I will also share with you a grave concern that I have for the body of Christ today. So what kind of faith do you have? Now, he begins to focus in on the actual outworking of true saving faith. But as One wrote, Warren Worsby, he says, Faith is not some kind of nebulous feeling that we work up. Faith is confidence that God's word is true and conviction that acting on the word will bring his blessing. The faith that truly saves is working in you to outwardly change you. Okay? But let's notice what he says here. He says in verse 15, talking about the type of faith that they appear to be manifesting, one that doesn't show itself through what they do. Now notice, he says, if a brother or sister that is a fellow Christian is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, and be warmed, filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Notice there that the word profit is used twice in verses 14 and 15. When you see a New Testament writer use the same word as he does here, he is expounding upon a thought He's asking a question. He is provoking a response. He is saying to you and I that the faith that we say that doesn't act upon the needs in which we see, how does it profit us? How does it benefit? But not only us, but the body of Christ and the world around us. He's asking, how does this demonstrate the continued work of Jesus Christ when we just so readily and easily dismiss a brother or sister in Christ that do not have the basic necessities of life, right? We need to understand food, shelter, and water are necessities here on this earth. And these Jewish individuals seemed uh, compelled or they felt comfortable with just, again, uh, saying, oh, go and be filled and be warmed. It doesn't do any good. It doesn't help in any way. And so then in verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And you do not expect action from it because it is dead. If it is dead, then it is a faith that cannot save you. And James seems to be asking a deeper question. 
he seems to be driving home to a different issue. For Galatians, even Paul wrote himself in Galatians 6.10. He says, Therefore we have an opportunity. Let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Whatever they believed, it wasn't enough to change their actions, and therefore it was not saving faith. As one commented, he said, The question in James 2.14 should read, Can that kind of faith save us? What kind? The kind of faith that is never seen in practical works. The answer is no. Any declaration of faith that does not result in a changed life and good works is a false declaration. That kind of faith is dead faith. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Even John Calvin wrote when he stated, It is faith alone that justifies, for sure. But faith that justifies can never be alone. And the word alone there simply means by itself. True saving faith can never be by itself. It always brings life, and that life produces good works. Now, this isn't the only example of this type of manifestation of a reality within in the New Testament. The same is true with the New Testament concept of love. We can say that we love one another, but if that love is not demonstrated towards one one another, can we truly say that we honestly love one another? For this is what John got to when in 1 John 3.17, when he said, But whoever has this, the world's goods, and sees his brother in need, and shuts up his heart from him, meaning, Go, be warm, be filled. How does, that, how does the love of God abide in him? I like what one wrote. He said, dead faith is counterfeit faith and lulls a person into a false confidence of eternal life. What type or kind of faith do you have? Notice in verse 18. He brings the point home one step further. Now, someone will say, you have faith, but I have works. And he says, well, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. It is clear that James is indicating that faith precedes works in the life of the believer. He is not saying that salvation the justification of the individual in and through Jesus Christ isn't obtained through the new covenant by faith. What he is saying is that if it's truly there and it truly has bring forth the new birth, then actions will indicate. It'll be manifest of that reality, the life of the believer. He says in verse 19, Now you believe that there is one God, well, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Now for the Jewish person, you'll understand that this is quite insulting. 
Remember when Jesus was walking on the face of the earth and the religious leaders tried to ascertain where Jesus received his authority from? They couldn't say of, from God the Father, could they? Because that would acknowledge that he was the Son of God. So they immediately went to demonic spirits. He, gets his, uh, he casts out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus said, what house divided against itself can stand? So now James brings this to the attentions of the Jewish individual. Oh, you say that there's one God. Good, good. That's right. It's true. Oh, and by the way, even the demons believe that. Theologically, the demons were quite astute concerning God, weren't they? They believed in the existence of God, clearly. They believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and acknowledged that openly. They realized the authority and the power of the Word of God, didn't they? as they were forced to obey it. And did they not proclaim, even after Jesus ascended into heaven, such as Paul, being one of his disciples, and confirming the gospel of his grace? And even the seven sons of Sceva, when Paul went to cast them out, remember, oh, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but we don't know you guys, and you know what happened next. The demons have a rich theological understanding of God. But that theological understanding does not provide salvation for them, does it? There's many who know about God, but I'm afraid don't know God. And I believe there's a distinct difference between the two. Remember Jesus said something quite haunting in Matthew 7, 21. When he said, many will stand before me and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all of these things in your name? And he'll say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. We see that throughout the Old Testament, individuals had a rich understanding about God, didn't they? And yet they still went and disobeyed everything that he said by worshiping other gods, intermarrying with other nations, etc. Even not allowing the land to rest, which eventually led to the Babylonian captivity. It's not what we know about God that's important. Let us understand that true Christianity is knowing God within a relationship. Now, he already knows us. And when we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that's only an indication that he knew us before the foundations of the world. But he brings to their attention the idea that even the demons believe. And that belief leads them to an emotional response. They believe and tremble. Some may feel that they have a saving faith in Jesus Christ simply because of the emotional response that they may have to a song that is sung, a message that is given. They may have walked the aisle of the church many times to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. But emotional responses alone don't necessarily indicate that one has truly been saved. 
We must be careful. We must be careful. Because even the demons trembled in an emotional way before their Lord. In verse 20, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? In the structure of the Greek, he is now summarizing for us and will support that summary with two Old Testament examples. One is the example of Abraham, which all of them as Jewish individuals would have respected, the father of the nation of Israel. But then he turns to Rahab. Now this is interesting. Not only was she a woman who they may not consider as uh, noteworthy as Abraham, but she was also a Gentile. Oh, and by the way, she was also a harlot. Okay, can you say low on the totem pole for influence? But James clearly respected her and indicates to us that through her life, saving faith was demonstrated. This would have been an insult to the Jewish men who were reading this. How could she, a Gentile woman who is a harlot, be saved and I not? Ho oh, God is not a respecter of persons. I think we read about favoritism just earlier, haven't we? James is unique, and he doesn't hold any punches. If you haven't gotten that by now, make a note, he doesn't pull his punches when he addresses his recipients. Notice what he says, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his Isaac, his son, on the altar? Now, I think all of us are familiar with Genesis chapter 22. When God instructed Abraham to give the, his chosen son Isaac, Isaac was the chosen one, not Ishmael. As he was then the chosen one, meaning that the messianic line was going to come through Isaac, God asked Abraham just to do something that was just unconscionable. He asked him to sacrifice his son there on top of the mountain. And as Abraham and his son made his way, now his son was more likely around 30 years old, between 30 and 33 years old at this time, they carried the wood from the animals below up the mountain. And when they got up there, when they got up there, his son asked, well, where's the offering? Oh, it's you. There was a confidence, though, that God would provide himself an offering. It was a visual illustration of what God was about to do in and through the person of Jesus Christ. But the three days from the time in which Abraham was told by God to sacrifice his son to the day that the revelation was given to Abraham and a ram was provided, that God would provide himself a sacrifice, those three days, Isaac was dead in the mind of Abraham. And then on the third day, his life was spared and he was again alive to Abraham. And of course, they then proceeded to sacrifice the ram in which God provided on their behalf. Now, 
Interesting that at the foothill of that mountain, Abraham already announced that he and his son would return. One way or another, he knew that God was going to fulfill his promise through Isaac. That mountain was the same mountain that Jesus Christ was crucified on some thousand years later. Now notice what is said next in verse 22. Do you see that faith, working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect or complete? The promise that Abraham was given in verse 23 And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, that actual promise was in Genesis 15. But James points to Genesis 22, showing how that faith worked itself out, it manifested itself in the life of Abraham to justify or to show and demonstrate that Abraham had true faith in God in fulfilling his promises. What's interesting in the book of Romans, Paul uses the same illustration of his belief being accounted to him as righteousness. This is justification meaning that the account of Abraham, which was bankrupt before God, has not only been satisfied, meaning a debt been paid through the finished work of Jesus Christ, but also that he has been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, which is called the imputation of righteousness, meaning that God took off his filthy clothes and forgave him of his sins, and then clothed him with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what he does to each and every one of us, for each and every one of us, when we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. What James is getting at now, though, is that, look, so many years later, when it came down to the significant decision of the sacrifice of uh, Abraham's son Isaac, he was willing to do so. His faith was genuine. Because he believed the promises of God. So there is no doubt that an individual is justified by faith. But the type of faith that one is justified by manifests itself through works. Not that those works obtain or maintain our salvation, but simply justify the fact that we have been saved. Verse 24 You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Not in the sense of not being saved, but justified. The word justified there means not justified before God positionally, but justified practically before others. It was this open demonstration that individuals could see and notice and recall and say, yes, Abraham truly believed what he said he believed. And one summed it up this way. He said that what Abraham demonstrated was that true saving faith will seek to fulfill the will of God. But now in verse 25. Now likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified openly by works, 
when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Now, to the Jewish reader, this would have been astonishing. James, the head of the church there in Jerusalem, the stepbrother of Jesus, or the half-brother of Jesus, is now using a Gentile woman as an example, and she's also found in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. This woman, who realized who God was in the minimum information that she had, was willing to fear God more than her own countrymen. Of course, being there, situated on the wall of Jericho, not a piece of property you would want to have once they start marching around it, protected the spies that came in. Joshua too. And when she protected the spies, she asked and stated, can you please make sure that myself and my family are spared? Because we've heard of your God. We know what he's doing. And she was willing to put that fear, that reverence for God, before her fear of man before her. And God again saw her as one acting in true faith. So in both cases, not only does James demonstrate the type of faith that saves, but he gave polar opposite examples saying that not only Abraham, but Rahab, Abraham a man and Jewish, Rahab a woman and a Gentile, both saved in the same manner that God had prescribed. One called this type of faith dynamic faith. And they describe it this way. Dynamic faith that is real, faith that has power, faith that results in a changed life. Dynamic faith is based on God's word, and it involves the whole man. For dead faith touches only the intellect. The demonic faith involves apparently both the mind and the emotions, but dynamic faith involves also the will. The whole person plays a part in true saving faith. The mind understands the truth, the heart desires the truth, and the will will act upon the truth. The men and women of faith named in Hebrews 11 were people of action. God spoke and they obeyed. As one went on to say, dynamic faith obeys God and proves itself daily and works. Alas, we still have church members today who simply fit the description of those who have an intellectual faith or whose faith is simply accompanied by emotions. In each and every case, James would ask them, can this faith save you? Now, When Paul wrote his epistles to the Gentiles, he was explaining to them how salvation was obtained through Jesus Christ. And there is no other clear statement that is found than in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Most of you, I would imagine, have these verses memorized. However, though, 
these two verses alone do not fulfill the complete thought that Paul wrote. And I'm going to show and to demonstrate to you this morning that Paul absolutely agreed with what James said. That true saving faith will manifest itself in good works. When you look at the grammatical construction of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, the thought is contained in 8, 9, and concluded in verse 10. Notice what he says. For by grace you have been saved through work. Uh, through works. Let me read that again. <laughs> For grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? What? Good works. He fully saw the outplaying of true saving faith demonstrated through good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When we get to Titus in the pastoral epistles, Paul made this abundantly clear. Notice in Titus 1.16, should be on the screen behind you, behind me. They profess to know God, but in what? Works, they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Later, he said to Titus again, this is a faithful saying in Titus 3.8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want to affirm consistently, or constantly, excuse me that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain what? Good works. These, are, these things are good and profitable to men. So this apparent contradiction that we began with, we find is no contradiction at all. We are looking at the same thing. And Paul is clearly indicating that one who is truly saved will manifest that salvation through good works. No, the good works do not save them, but is evident of their salvation. Does that make sense? So I don't believe we have a theological conundrum at all. I just believe we are looking at the same subject from two perspectives. So, how can you tell if you are truly saved? Warren Worsby writes, he says, How can you tell if a person is justified truly by faith? If this transaction takes place between the sinner and God privately? Abraham's example answers that important question. The justified person has a changed life and obeys God's will. His faith is demonstrated by his works. This is what Paul was alluding to in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and 6. When he wrote, he said, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. He concluded by saying it is important that each professing Christian examine his own heart and life and make sure 
that he possesses true, saving, dynamic faith. The Bible instructs us to examine ourselves. Now, my concern. Within the Church of America, starting way back in the late 1980s, John MacArthur began to write concerning what he called easy believism. It was a gospel that wasn't truly based upon the biblical gospel. And his conclusion in his book was that unfortunately, over the course of time, many would come to a place where they believe that they are saved. And unfortunately, at the end, they will hear those words of Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you. As time has gone on in the last 10 to 15 years, I have grown personally concerned that many who profess to be Christians, we do not see fruit in their life. We do not see a heart or a desire for the things of God. We do not see their desire to be in fellowship with their brothers and sisters in Christ. They appear to have no conviction concerning sin and elements of the world that the Bible clearly tells us that we should not partake in. And yet believe that they are saved simply because... They made a profession at one time without any fruit to substantiate that profession. Salvation is a matter of the heart for sure. I leave the identifying of one who is truly saved to God because he's the one that sees the heart and the mind of the individual. However, though Jesus and the New Testament writers told us clearly that those who are truly saved will manifest that salvation within their life. Now, you've heard me say many times that I believe we are all works in progress. We're all going to stumble. We're all going to fail time and time again. But as we look back at the totality of our Christian life, we should be seeing sanctification taking place within our life, meaning that we're conforming into the image of Jesus. Now, it may be slow. It may be a slow process. The fruit that one is bearing may be smaller than a raisin itself. However, though, fruit should be present in the life of the individual. John, in 1 John 2.19, clearly indicated, based upon what Jesus said in John 15 concerning the uh, abiding in Christ, that true one who is truly saved, regardless of their failures and faults and stumbles and falls, uh, will continue with Christ over time. And I agree with my pastor who absolutely believes that continuing with Christ is one of the greatest evidence of one truly being saved. Now that being said, as we had just read, Paul clearly asks us, commands us to examine ourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. As I opened a couple of weeks ago with the question, if you driving home this afternoon after church were pulled over and arrested by the Algonquin Police Department, and you were there and they're charging you and reading you your Miranda rights, 
And your, the charge against you is that you are being arrested for being a Christian. Would there be enough evidence in a court of law to convict you of that charge? Today, the world is growing more and more difficult every day. There's more and more confusion every day. And the antagonism towards Christianity continues to grow, without a doubt. Many blame the Christian church in America for the holding back of the progressive ideas that they have that will bring our society into a utopia. Well, if I understand their utopia properly, I am going to try to resist it any way I can. Because it fails to even come close to that which the kingdom of God can provide. A dystopia is much more accurately, accurate of a description of what we see being created around us. But in that antagonism towards Christianity, it is imperative that we know that we are truly saved. It's imperative that we know that for us, this is the worst it's going to get. It's only going to get better. We need to understand to continue to walk in the hope of our salvation in Jesus Christ by knowing that we are truly in the faith. And so I ask you to take what Paul says here seriously. Examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. Now Warren Worsby, who as many of you know, is someone who greatly has influenced me. He wrote nine things that we can consider, and I'd like to read them too. These are very practical. If anybody would like a copy of this, too bad. No, I'll be glad to provide it for you. Here are some questions that we can ask ourselves as we examine our hearts. Number one, was there a time when I honestly realized I was a sinner and admitted this to myself and to God? Number one. Number two, was there a time when my heart stirred me to flee from the wrath to come and have a serious exercise, have been seriously exercised over my sins? Meaning that I realize that my sin warrants the judgment of God. And I need to deal with that now before the wrath of God comes. Number three, Do I truly understand the gospel, that Christ died for my sins and arose again? Do I understand and confess that I cannot save myself? Number four, did I sincerely repent of my sins and turn from them? Or do I secretly love sin and want to enjoy it continuously? Number five, Have I trusted Christ and Christ alone for my salvation? Do I enjoy living a living relationship with Him through the Word and in His Spirit? Number six, has there been a change in my life? Do I maintain good works or are my works occasional and weak? Do I seek to grow in the things of the Lord? Can others tell that I have been with Jesus? Number seven, 
Do I have a desire to share Christ with others? Or am I ashamed of Him? Number eight, do I enjoy the fellowship of God's people? Is worshiping with them a delight to me? And number nine, am I ready for the Lord's return? Or will I be ashamed when He comes for me? I'll be glad to give those to anyone who wants them for further reference. I'd like to read again to you, if I may, what Paul said. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you indeed are disqualified. But I trust that you know that we are not disqualified. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead.